the yen and the renminbi are near record lows this morning as the US dollar, the king of currencies, is getting even more of a tailwind from higher bond yields. US economic growth is now clearly pulling away from Asia. That's coming up in our five things in five minutes. And then in our bonus deep dive, Betty Wang explains how China's authorities are pivoting towards a Singapore-style approach to public housing as part of its common prosperity vision. So under this big umbrella, to provide affordable dwellings to China's local households have become a very serious topic for China's top leadership team. And that's why Chinese policymakers have started to find some new ways to, to provide housing supplies. But first, in 5 and 5 with ANZ, the Asian currencies are very weak again this morning against the US dollar, with signs of central bank intervention and threats of more intervention to come being the focus for traders. China's renminbi, or the CNH, is testing all-time lows of 7.32 to the US dollar. That's after the People's Bank of China set the so-called fixed level at a record 1,157 basis points away from where the market expected yesterday. ANZ's head of FX research, Marjabin Zaman, says all eyes are now on the PBOC as it tries to limit the fall in its currency. I think 7.3 was really a line in the sand. One thing is trying to defend that level. The other is trying to control the speed of the decline through intervention. So it could be the latter, but we'll have to kind of, again, continue to wait and see because uh, almost on a daily basis or every second day, we have new policy action from China uh, on the FX front itself. And I think um, that's something we're watching pretty closely to see what's next out of their policy toolbox. Number two, data out yesterday showed Australia's GDP grew 0.4% in the June quarter. Now, that was in line with ANZ's forecast. Here's ANZ's head of Australian economics, Adam Boyton. The interesting thing was the upward revision to Q1 in a way. So that means that over the first half of this year, GDP growth has been annualising at about 1.6. That's probably a bit less of a slowdown than we might have been thinking. It's not materially so, but the economy certainly hasn't collapsed in the first half of this year. Number three, another feature of the Australian GDP figures was a fall in per capita GDP and another fall in productivity or output per hour worked. Adam says it's worth looking through some of the noise in the data. What the data is saying on productivity is productivity is currently incredibly weak. I think this is really still just a bit of a post-COVID adjustment. I think what we'll see next quarter is, is I guess, the underlying trend in productivity starting to, to assert. So I wouldn't be too, too concerned about the weakness in productivity we saw in Q1. I'd be more worried if that started to persist through the second half of this year and into next. It looks to me like productivity bounced up during the pandemic. It's coming back to earth now. It, it maybe is overcorrected a bit, but uh, I think there's more noise than signal in the productivity numbers right now. Number four, the yen is also under enormous pressure from the US dollar this morning at 147.7 yen to the dollar. That's close to a 33-year low. So Japan's authorities are clearly on intervention watch. Here's Majibin again, who still sees 150 yen as the line in the sand for Japan. We saw Japan's Kanda who came out to say that, you know, um, a little bit of, I guess, that verbal intervention story uh, where he says that, you know, FX should move stably. We are watching FX with high sense of urgency. Um, so, again, this is um, verbal intervention. I think the last time we saw a bit of this was in mid-August. Um, and, of course, we did not see any impact on the yen on the back of that. 
Number five, global dairy prices appear to have bottomed out. Here's ANZ's agricultural economist for New Zealand, Susan Kilsby, on a bounce in prices on New Zealand's global dairy trade auction platform yesterday. We have had a really wet winter, early spring period. So that's certainly um, impacting pasture production right now and will potentially reduce the peak milk supply um, at the end of October. Of bigger potential concern is what happens through the summer months. It is highly likely that we'll move into El Nino conditions soon. So that could have a, a detrimental impact on milk supply, particularly in a season like this where milk prices are low and therefore farmers won't be able to afford to buy additional feed and may just choose to dry cows off um, rather than buy feed um, and, and run it at a loss. ANZ Susan Kilsby there. Now in our bonus deep dive, ANZ Senior Economist for China, Betty Wang, explains the shift towards a new public housing model in China that looks a lot like the one used for 60 years in Singapore. My colleague, Catherine Dyer, spoke to Betty in Hong Kong. A big policy backdrop that we need to bear in mind when we understand the shift in China's property policy is the so-called long vision of common prosperity. So under this big umbrella, to provide affordable dwellings to China's uh, local households have become a very serious uh, topic for China's top leadership team. And that's why I think Chinese policymakers have started to uh, find some new ways to provide housing supplies. And also, if you look back historically in the past 30 years or so, the boom and bust of China's property market has resulted from the creation of the so-called commodity housing, which is equivalent to market-oriented private housing. It has brought prosperity to the economy and also increased asset values of household and even local governments. But at the same time, it is also blamed for bringing up the uh, uh, living cost as well as a deviation from the core tenets of China's socialist principles. So how is this approach, how does it impact on investment? In general, um, I think the investment on social housing could partly offset the loss in construction as well as infrastructure investment because of the property downturn happening in the past three years or so. And we do have an estimate in terms of the investment scales. It could be equivalent to 7 to 8% of China's total property investment, excluding land acquisition by 2025. What was Hong Kong's so-called 85K housing policy in 1997, and why does this provide a warning to policymakers today? Sure. So the so-called 85K housing policy was actually aimed um, at providing an annual housing supply of 85K by then. And uh, so the ultimate goal is to enable 70% of local households to own their own home within 10 years. In terms of warnings that can be alerted to China's policymakers can be from two aspects. So the first is uh, when the government was about to launch these policies, it actually caused a shock to, in the local economy. And of course, it was exacerbated by the Asian financial crisis. In such case, I think China's policymakers needs to manage, um, you know, the pace and extent they are introducing the public housing. Uh, but of course, on the other hand, the abandonment of this policy is regarded as uh, one factor that has caused the longest price rise in Hong Kong, as well as the least affordability uh, globally. So it really requires a balancing act and uh, the 
policy wisdom from Chinese policymakers. What are the challenges for this new housing model? Well, the challenges could be quite high, especially when we are considering a very huge annual supply of, of about one billion square meters housing supply to be、uh, provided in China's housing market on an annual basis. In the past few years, when Chinese government was trying to pilot some of the social housing projects, there have been proven to be unsuccessful, you know, because of a lack of investment incentive、um, and insufficient funding utilizations, and also、um, failure to attract household interest due to poor project management and remote locations are also blamed. So, in that sense, China does have a long way to go to do the transition,、um, but at least. Now it looks the right time to do so. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was Five and Five with ANZ for Thursday, September the seventh. Catch you tomorrow for a deep dive into how the Bank of Indonesia is trying to shore up the rupiah. This podcast was recorded for publication on behalf of ANZ. All associated disclosures and disclaimers can be viewed using the link in your media player or the ANZ website through which you access this podcast. All care has been taken to report the views of ANZ Research in the creation of this podcast. But as an independent host, any differing interpretations are strictly mine and not ANZ's. Feel free to contact your ANZ point of contact with any questions.